I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. You're listening to Muses and Stuff. This is the podcast that's all about the dolls. They were the groupies, the wives, the girlfriends, and the muses who played such a huge role in rock and roll history by simply being themselves. They were sweet, sexy, brave, and powerful. They went after what and who they wanted, and they made no apologies. We are your hosts, Shanti and Lynx. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hello, Lynx. Hello. How are you doing? I'm hungover. Yeah. <laughs> Your costume, amazing. Thank you very much. Amazing. Yeah, I went out for Halloween last night, Halloween party, so the Saturday before Halloween, and uh, I dressed up as David Byrne. It was it was spectacular. And stop making sense with the big old suit. And photos are on the Instagram. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Got to check it out. Mm-hmm. There's one photo. And then if you're kind of following along with us, there's some stories. But um, yeah, I went out. I had a great time. Um, listen to this. Mm-hmm. I'm walking down the street and we were walking from like Dufferin and Bloor to Bloor and Ossington. So mm-hmm. not too far. But uh, we took some side streets, and as we were walking down this side street, a street I have never walked down before, um, there's people sitting out on a porch, and somebody waved. And so I waved back and then walked to the middle of the street and started doing a David Byrne dance, like with the (laughs) knees back and forth. And then all of a sudden, a guy goes, wait, are you wearing a suit? And I went, yeah. And he went, are you David Byrne? (laughs) And I went, yeah. And he comes out. I'm like, oh my God. And everybody was like, oh my God. He was also dressed as David Byrne in the the suit. And then he was like, 
are you Blake Lemieux's sister? No Because that's way. my brother. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, he told me that you were going to be dressing up as David Byrne. That is crazy. And then I immediately accused him of stealing Stuart. my costume idea. <laughs> He's like, no, no, I already had had planned it, and then he showed me the text he had sent my brother. I guess they were they used to work together, and they went out last week, and then he showed uh, me the text that he had sent my brother, being like, I think this is what I'm going to do for Halloween, and my brother was like, no way, my sister's doing that too. <laughs> that is so cool. So yeah, and then there was another girl at like before we had left that was like, I don't think anybody, I don't know if anybody is going to get your costume, and I was like, Are you kidding me? Um, like some people did, some people didn't, but obviously, like that guy did. Yeah, rock and rollers will know. The right um, people will know. Um, yeah. So, and I went out with my both of my brothers, and they like to party. And uh, I'm yeah. So I think this is might be like the first time in muses and stuff history that I've recorded an episode in a hungover. Hungover. Wow. That'll be interesting. Yeah. No, I think it, it's good. I feel like Bob Dylan in the 80s. So yeah, I think that yeah. this is probably for the best because today we are talking about Bob Dylan in the 80s. <laughs> I'm so excited because I know nothing about... I mean, I know Bob Dylan's music from this period, but yeah. I don't really know anything about his life in this period. So this is good. And uh, this episode is based on the memoir, Seeing the Real You at Last, Life and Love on the Road with Bob Dylan by Brita Lee Shane. And this is one woman that I never have heard of before. This is what I love about this kind of I stuff know. is I didn't even like seek out this book. Mm-hmm. I was just at a library that I hadn't been to before and checked out their music section. And, and there it was. Jackpot. Amazing. Uh, yeah, and then I showed it to TJ and he was like, oh, Bob Dylan, the 80s. That's the best Bob Dylan. Interesting. That's... So. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it was a really, always really fascinating book. Really great. So, I mean, as always, we recommend pick it up, you know? Yeah. Like, it is such a good book. Um, we can only hit so much of it in an hour, but... Let's get right to it, shall we? Please. Okay, so yeah, this book written by Brita Lee Shane um, is about being in the inner circle in the mid-80s with Bob Dylan and his crew. I'd love to be there. Um, well, I'm going to bring you there please. right now. Please do. <laughs> so by two pages into this book, I totally identified with her sense of humor. Like I was, it was, it was hooked. It Took me no time at all to read it. Um, and then, of course, like uh, the memoirs that these ladies do, she wrote it to make peace with her long-felt affection for him. Mm. Um, she said that their friendship, you know, the relationship has been mischaracterized uh, so that it, it was time for her to set the record straight. Um, so we kind of, you know, opened the book, 1966, Sex, Drugs, and Anti-War Demonstrations. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, she was living in L.A. Uh, her alcoholic mother was dying of cancer, and her dad was in the hospital suffering from delusions. Wow. Yeah. So um, she said that, uh, describes herself as a lonely child from just this side of the wrong side of the tracks who happened to be smart and pretty. Um, her first boyfriend was the one that turned her on to Bob Dylan when he brought over uh, Highway 61 Revisited. 
Um, so yeah, she's just, you know, young girl gets into Dylan. She goes out and buys every single one of his albums, um, because she says she has a lot of catching up to do. And then she writes, whoever this Bob Dylan cat is, he really speaks to me. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. So she went to university. Um, she was in a sorority and she got her master's degree in educational psychology from UCLA, um, but ended up working as a secretary for an entertainment uh, accounting firm on the Sunset Strip. Okay. Yeah, pretty early on, she says, um, if someone uh, back then had said... Uh, that one day I'd meet Mr. Dylan, the man, face to face. I probably would have told them, I want a hit of what you're token. <laughs> um, so she's seeing shows. It's 1970. She goes and sees Carol King and James Taylor at the Troubadour. Amazing. Um, speaking of James Taylor, I finished Carly Simon's memoir. Nice. Yeah, Boys in the Trees. I, was, um, I have that. I haven't read it yet, though. It's one of the best books I've read in a very long time. Awesome. Two days it took me. So I told you that I would uh, like to do an episode about it, but I'm, I'm not going to do that because I just want to encourage and urge everybody because it's it just recently came out. Yeah. Read it. Okay. Like I know that there's a copy um, at the library in Toronto, uh, the Dundas and Bathurst Library. Um, I just bought it, but read it worth it's worth it awesome yeah so i would like everybody to go out and read it and then maybe as time goes on a little bit we can revisit it and when it's yeah but it's definitely because it's it's so new and stuff it's just oh god it's fantastic um yeah so brita sees bob dylan in concert and uh the guy who processed her tickets was an old friend who gave her seats um 10th uh 10 rows back in, but it was like in the center. So she was pretty stoked about, you know, these tickets because I guess those were Prime. even even 10 rows back at a Dylan concert is a good ticket. Yes. I can't believe I was four rows back at a Dylan concert. Yep. It was insane. Um, she said the 70s for her weren't just a joy ride of bell bottoms and platform shoes Um, her mother died in 1971 she had a friend die of leukemia and um, around that time she met a man named Ron who she would eventually marry and then who also died okay so Ron was a Vietnam vet uh oh yeah tortured by the action he had seen so he would wake up in the middle of the night screaming ptsd mm. mm-hmm. um they lived together a uh, block from the beach and uh, he was a dylan fan as well so she's 26 years old she has two college degrees um she's struggling financially she decides that she wants to be a writer um that's where you make money <laughs> <laughs> But um, she had, you know, heard the voices of doubt in her mind, hearing her mother telling her that she's not good enough. And, um, Mm. you know, so she didn't pursue writing right away. I'm glad she did later. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Actually, 
there was a moment um, towards the end of this when she tells Bob, like, I'm going to, like, I'm going to just keep pursuing my writing. And he just, like, sucks the wind between his teeth. <laughs> <laughs> I feel the pain. I, I want to write. I want to be a writer, too. So. Just not, oh, not what mean, you do if you want to be making the dough. But I mean, like, because as soon as Bob Dylan hears that one yes. of his ladies is a writer. For it's sure. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> He's got to be used to it by now. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> she goes to school for real estate and in the meantime works as an office manager to a plastic surgeon. So um, some of the things that I don't get into um, is like there's funny little tidbit stories all over the place. Like uh, a time when her boss brought a psychic into the office and it's just like some of the crazy shit that her boss and the psychic got up to and I gotcha. Yeah. Like, not really, like, I can't really justify adding it in. To, I understand. Like, Doesn't the propel the story forward, exactly, but it's, it's very funny. interesting when you yeah, read it. it. I gotcha. Yeah. So, check that out. Um, so, she marries Ron and he dies on the back of a motorcycle. So, she pours herself into work, is working 80 hours a week, making lots of money and losing all of her friends until she's like, what the fuck? Jeez. Yeah. Um, so, all the while, she's kind of following Bob Dylan and what he's been doing and where he's been playing. Um, August 1976, she says, an interview with Dylan appears in TV Guide of all places, um, the, uh, the TV Guide of all places. When the interviewer asks him how he envisions God, Dylan responds, how come nobody ever asked Chris Christopherson questions like that? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So she discusses the Dylan shows that she's seen, the venue, the year. Um, 1979, she calls Bob intense but disheveled. Uh, she went to a show where some people booed him and walked out, but she enjoyed it. That seems to be the like the general kind of outcome of a Bob Dylan show. Half the people are like, what the fuck? And then yeah. the other half are like, damn, that was good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so December 8th, 1980, she writes, because she was a journal keeper, note keeper, thank goodness. Um, John Lennon is assassinated, and I take it personally. The next day, I blow off a mandatory real estate meeting to cruise the streets of Los Angeles in my latest vehicle, a mid-70s Silver's Mercedes-Benz, wearing a black armband and buying up Beatles albums while commiserating with other devastated Lennon devotees. Aww. Somewhere in here, I replace all of my old Bob Dylan albums because they're all, stra- they're all scratched. Aww. Yeah, so she really sets up at the beginning just talking about how much of a fan she is, basically, um, and how she really, really, really followed him. Um, Quick cool thing about Yoko Ono, June 1981. um, She writes a letter to the Los Angeles Times in the defense of Yoko Ono when the press was exploiting, like when Yoko Ono was bashed in the press because they were saying that she was exploiting John's death by releasing the controversial album Season of Glass. Um, And it ended up getting published and... Hmm. Yeah, so she was a Yoko fan. Yeah, Mm mm-hmm. Um, she had, uh, Brita had written her first novel around this point, um, called Detours, and she's got a good sense of humor about the whole thing. I don't think it ever really, like, picked up, got published, anything like that. Um, but anyways, so she decides to start dating after her husband dies, and then, uh, she starts dating a young hot rod guy. He's younger, uh, he's a, now you can tell me if I'm pronouncing this right or wrong, Delenophile. 
Dylanophile? Yeah. Dylanophile. So brings her audio tapes um, and uh, she keeps all that stuff. They break up and then he shacks up with a cool MTV DJ. Um, and then she marries the next guy who she meets, who she says uh, was a music producer who does mostly commercials when he's not doing drugs. Okay. <laughs> so things are getting kind of wild for her. I think she's kind of off the rails a little bit with like all of this craziness happening with her life and her personal life and um that marriage ended up ending after nine months but she said at least everyone was still alive you don't say (laughs) (laughs) yeah so um i like that she kind of goes on to about dylan's performances at this time Uh, he was on letterman um she said that he was kind of weird and off balance and then there's like a pretty funny thing that i'll just like read it from her um that she says about dylan's live aid performance oh okay yeah, so this is uh, July 1985 at this point. So now we're getting into oh. mid-80s. We're going to like... Is that... <laughs> Go Blinks on. Blinks is dancing. <laughs> um... <laughs> so... Wait, is July 13th your birthday? It's the 5th. 1985? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Don't put my age out there. <laughs> own it. Um... Man, being hungover and recording a podcast is a horse of a different color. (laughs) Okay, so she is um, hanging out with a couple of buds. She runs into an an ex-boyfriend whose name was Fred, and then he changed it to Durf. Durf? Durf. Durf. D-E-R-F. So she's hanging out with a bunch of people. Um, Drugs? I don't know. Drugs, and I guess he was into numerology. So uh, they're just like smoking grass and then somebody's like, Dylan's on Live Aid. And this is what she says about the performance. A bunch of us huddle around a small TV passing a joint as Dylan, Ron Wood and Keith Richards, looking as though they've been dug up from their respective graves, deliver one of the worst performances imaginable. (laughs) Before staggering off stage, Dylan does wind up mumbling something audible, albeit inappropriate, about diverting one or two million dollars of the money collected for saving the lives of Ethiopia. Ethiopian famine victims to helping farmers here in the U.S. pay off their mortgages. Oh God! Everyone is watching. Who is? Everyone watching is disgusted by the debacle, except for me. I'm merely confused. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably a very accurate description of Dylan and Ronnie and yeah Keith at that time. Yeah. So by this point, you know she's been fan for years, and uh, so she goes on. She continues on. She gets a dog. Um, drives around, cruises around in her car that she has, you know, an affinity for. She's like a cool girl with a cool car. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, she's hanging out at the houses of playwrights, taking acting classes, living up in Westwood, figuring shit out, trying to find a group that she feels like home with. You know, yeah. you know, I like how this day and age we call it like our tribe. Like you got to find your tribe. So like Breed is out there just trying to find her tribe, trying to put the pieces of her shattered life together right now. <laughs> These are my words. <laughs> Um, but anyways, so she tries out for the two best acting schools in town. Um, one is called The Loft, and the other one that uh, she says is, like, hugely based in Scientology. Because um, there's yeah. tons of Scientologists in Hollywood. But she says uh, that she went to the one, The Loft, because um, rather than the Scientology one, she said, and I know with my personality, if I get in, I'll never get out. Mm. 
good call. Yeah. Her audition for The Loft basically just consists of her telling her life story. In her words, she says, alcoholic mother, schizophrenic father, incest, death, lots and lots of death. Jeez. Yeah. So, she's doing her acting classes, um, having a good time, and then she gets offered by her friend Carla. Well, it's her friend, Carla's friend, Ira. Okay. Knows Bob Dylan's road manager, a guy <laughs> named Ernie. Okay. A really far out guy with a kitchen that looks like a diner. Far out. Yeah, so Ernie's far out. So Carla's like, my friend Ira knows Ernie, and we want to hook you up with Ernie. Okay. And so Brita's like, that's pretty close to Bob Dylan. <laughs> Cool. <laughs> but, you know, it's 1985, and before she can meet Ernie, she has to wait until he and Dylan are back from a poetry convention in Russia. A poetry convention? In Russia. Wow. Apparently around this time, actor T-Bone Burnett had turned Dylan on to, uh, in a d- religious direction, mm-hmm. um, and it was the same church that she was looking at when she was looking to find her sort of group of people. So she was kind of looking into that a little bit, too. Um so, yeah, she meets a guy uh, on the set of being an extra in one of T-Bone's movies. And afterwards, um, one of the film's producers tries to woo her by bringing over rare Dylan paraphernalia. She listens and watches everything he brings over, which is, like, quite a marathon for her. But he leaves when he realizes that he's not getting any. Oh. Right? So he tried to, like, oh, you're into Dylan? Well, let me show you all this stuff. It was kind of like this one time in university when uh, I would invite guys over to watch Running Down a Dream. Oh, no. <laughs> but that's all it was. I was like, no, no, yeah. no. You're here because you need to see this, man. And then they were like, oh, we're not hooking up. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> or they'd just be really appreciative that I just showed them the best rockumentary. Okay, so she does end up going out with Ernie in September of 1985 and they have a great time. She says he was cute and funny and he was a rockabilly Presley type with black tight jeans and a leather jacket and cowboy boots and you know he has a cool house he's a confident confidant of Dylan so she really genuinely was was into him. Um, She said that he didn't drink or smoke um, but boring (laughs) but she she had some wine and they ended up staying up all night um and they did have sex she said so here's a red flag ernie's number one red flag first red flag i should say he's all sulky because he was like, you didn't have an orgasm. Oh, no. And she tries to explain the difference or the different kinds. And he's just like sulky about it. So, okay. Oh, you didn't have an orgasm. <laughs> like, well, there's lots of different kinds of orgasm. And I really still enjoyed myself. You know, like, yeah. oh, it shouldn't be the man yeah. sulky about that. Yeah. If, if she's fine with it, why wouldn't he be? Uh-huh. I don't know why I'm talking shit on Ernie already. Okay, he's like a pretty good guy. Um, so he was also, he was a widow. No, wait, widower? He's a widower. She's a widow. Um, so basically they both lost their partners. And so they got to, they did connect through that. Um, but she said it was hard for her to live up to the ideal that he had had for his wife. Mm. And the relationship quickly started to suffer because, you know, like he still had all of her stuff. It was just like that sort of... Um, you know it's definitely different when like your significant other passes away when you're still together and in love as opposed to 
you know, yep. divorcing and having that closure. Mm, mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, they were known for having and throwing amazing parties. Like they were really, really good hosts. Um, they'd make a ton of food and then they'd order a ton of food and they'd always have cool music and, you know, music industry and movie people come on over. Um, she said that his whole house was a collector's paradise. It was full of advertising and industrial art, most of it functional. So like pink neon Pegasus and like think vending machines and a photo booth that worked. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It was one of those kind of houses, like a movie set kind of house and where just everything works. Um, so it's 1985, so what I got really excited about this book, too, is that there's a lot of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers mentioned in it. Yeah, I bet. Because they went on tour as Dylan's backup band, and they kind of both invigorated each other. You yeah. Know? Like, the Heartbreakers needed to change. Dylan obviously needed something because he was... Kind of getting lost there. Yeah. 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 Um... Um, in Illinois, there was something called Farm Aid, and she says everyone was expecting a train wreck. We all breathed a sigh of relief when, um, because you know, because of the previously mentioned disasters, uh, it was a good, it was a good performance. Cool, yeah. Um, so yeah, and she's like, "What's up with Dylan?" Well, he's probably you know exhausted, you know, touring. The, the enormous pressure of being Bob Dylan. Um, and it was an, an inter- interesting thing that they noted was that, like, you know, Bob Dylan could, like, make or break a party. You oh. know, a lot of the, like, Bob Dylan has ruined parties just by being Bob Dylan. Because mm. you imagine that, right? Everybody's just, like, carrying on whatever. It's just a regular party. And then he walks through the door and then people yeah. are, change and are different, right? Yeah. Um... Yeah, so she meets Bob for the first time, actually, at Ernie's house. Um, And I'm going to read it because it's pretty funny. So she's just doing some work. She's, like, sitting around in one of Ernie's rooms. And he didn't tell her that Bob Dylan was coming over. He basically just said, go move your car out of the parking or out of the driveway because someone's coming over. And then, uh, so all of a sudden, she hears a commotion in the kitchen. Ernie's thundering back and forth to the jukebox. And then he comes in the room and says, he's here. <laughs> scurrying, aw- scurrying away again toward the kitchen. No, it couldn't be, I'm thinking. But my pounding heart is saying otherwise. I'm not going to meet Bob Dylan now. Not like this, wearing dorky business attire. But sure enough, I hear the nasal musings of the human being I admire most on the planet wafting above the music and moving closer to me as the man himself, Bob Dylan, catches up on Ernie's latest artistic improvements to the house. (laughs) Dylan walks into the room like a camel, and then he smiles. His eyes fix on the neon pegasus above me. Bob, Brita, Brita, Bob. This brief introduction by Ernie is the culmination of 20 years of near worship on my part. I've never seen a Bob Dylan smile, except in photos or on the stage. Not the real thing. Flicker of teeth, flash of blue-eyed lightning. A small silver cross dangles from his left ear. I black out for a second. When I come to, Ernie is escorting Bob, clad, I now notice, in blue jeans, white t-shirt, a black leather jacket, and tall-heeled boots, back to the kitchen for a conference. I suddenly feel very tired and collapse, fully clothed, onto Ernie's bed. It's understood I am not to interrupt them. At some point, Bob noiselessly passes by the open door to the bedroom on his way to use on his way to use the head and then passes back again. I see him, but I can't move. 
The next morning, when I awaken, it feels like there's an electrical charge surging through the house. Bob Dylan's overflowing ashtray and half-filled coffee cup are on the kitchen table. I examine both closely, but I leave them where they are, as if moving them will dispel the fact that he's been here. Aww. That's good. Yeah. That's a good introduction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a couple of other little stories thrown in there. Um, for example, Bob Dylan receives an award in 1986 and takes Elizabeth Taylor as his date. Amazing. Yeah. Um, so she and Ernie, Brita and Ernie, start hanging out with a guy named Elliot, who in the 60s was the father of underground radio in L.A. He did publicity uh, by the biggest names in showbiz. He was a disc jockey turned journalist, spent a lot of time with John and Yoko, actually six months, when they invited him to live with them in Japan. So she said that she connected with him on another level. He was a poet and a scholar, sensitive and emotionally intelligent. Things that Ernie really wasn't. Ernie was a hung up on the sex thing. And overall, um, she was getting what she needed out of the two guys. So they kind of became a trio. Yeah. So. I gotcha. Yeah. Um, She starts seeing more and more of Bob as she gets closer to Ernie. Um, At parties, she says sometimes it was difficult to talk to him, but then they seem to get be getting somewhere slowly. You know, it's one of those like inching closer and closer until trust is established and whatnot. Gotcha. Yeah. At this time, Bob Dylan is dating Carol Chalk. Carol Childs. And so I didn't know who that was. Okay. Um, but she was an A&R person with Geffen or Greffin, Geffen, Geffen Records. Yeah. Um, and that night at the party, um, she said that Bob was looking her over, Brita, upside down and backward. And uh, about her shiny red shoes, he said, why don't you click them together? <laughs> when she leaves the party that night, something happened. Bob approached them as the, at the door as they were leaving to say goodbye. And Brita says, When I smile and tell him how good it was to see him again, he puckers up, leans forward on his toes, and kisses me. On the lips. Whew. Good night. <laughs> wow. So... <laughs> She kind of, you know, it's when it's like a um, kind of like a family member or like, you know, my family's French, so we kiss each other on the lips. Um, but it's like a peck. It's more, it's like, a, yeah. um, you know, kind of like a sign of affection. And so she took it as a like Bob Dylan, you know, like. There's something there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she, she said, I'm savoring the thrill of Dylan's kiss when it hits me. We're going to be seeing a lot more of Bob Dylan around here. <laughs> <laughs> so Ernie and Brita throw another party and Sean Lennon is there. He's just a young kid at this point, probably about 10, um, 11 years old. And Brita would babysit him. Cool. Yeah. Um, this is pretty funny. She says, Stan Lynch, uh, that's the drummer of the Heartbreakers, is making his beguiling presence known at the party so mm. chatting so and she's chatting with Carla about him and ultimately they're kind of like winking in like a because Carla dated him and essentially the message was don't date drummers yeah but <laughs> it's really funny that I was reading this book because I actually met a woman this summer who dated Stan Lynch no way and she gave me a little bit of a oh, yeah? tidbit um, about Stan Lynch as a boyfriend and it's just funny because I'm reading the book and I'm like oh my god I'm picking up on the joke yeah, that they're yeah. doing but they're not explicitly saying anything but I know what they're talking about and it just made me feel like cool <laughs> you know like <laughs> cool um, 
So it was a jam-packed party, and Bob shows up towards the end in a hooded sweatshirt, um, which she describes him like wearing quite a lot around that time. Uh, she meets Carol Childs, who she describes as um, the smart, energetic Jewish woman wearing a white sailor suit and a Greek fisherman's cap. Her hair is a whiter shade of platinum. Her impeccably manicured nails are painted lurid red. She's a sexy, edgy. She's sexy and edgy, and. Um, pretty and her accent is strictly new york and it's like 1986 you know because so you can imagine how like oh yeah right the yeah. hair the hats the nail polish it's all just very mid 80s yeah <laughs> yeah um got some shoulder pads in there Oh, yeah. Uh, funny enough. Okay, so we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves there. But Brita ended up, like, shopping for Dylan a bit later, which we'll get into. Um, but when she did come back once with shoulder pads, like with uh, Jack's shoulder pads, yeah. Bob was like, what are you doing with those? Take those out. You don't need those. Good. Yeah. So he was never a fan, just by the way. So she said Sean Lennon is over by the CD player mimicking the blues guitarist Albert Collins, but he's not actually singing. He's making these kinds of guttural noises that capture the rhythm and intent of the music. Interesting. Yeah. So, of course, he would be, you know? Yeah. She says, I've been working out five times a week at an establishment in West Hollywood, and the skin-tight red and black leopard jeans I'm squeezed into bear testimony to the fact that, at age 37, I'm in pretty damn good shape for my age. <laughs> Before he leaves the party, Dylan looks at Brita, shakes a finger at her and says, I'll see you tomorrow. Ooh. The next day, she goes with Ernie to drop something off at Dylan's house. Um, and I put drop something off in like quotes because it's like, <laughs> I think at this point, Bob is trying to find now ways to see her, see her. or yeah. like, you know, telling Ernie, bring Brita with you or as he calls her, Brita. Brita. So she gets um, to his house, the guys chat, and Bob encourages her to walk around and explore the grounds of his house. So she's walking through the 14-acre backyard in heels among <laughs> rocks and all kinds of cool shit growing in the pool that has made and been made into a flower bed. She smells, um, you know, the whole like place smells of wild roses, rosemary and sage, and she is high right like she's high on the fact of being at, at bob dylan's house, house yeah. and taking everything in so she finds a bench lays on it finds a hammock on the ocean side of the property and hopes that she never has to leave um, yeah uh when she's at the back of the house when she's back at the house bob grabs her hand to look at the ring that she has on her middle finger so give me your hand for a second so imagine now bob's got her like this doing this and doing Ugh. kind of this to her right Amazing. and bob dylan doesn't really touch hands with a lot of people yeah. um because he considers those his like you know magical instruments and that's i've heard like before Prince. from people that yeah 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 exactly yeah. that's what it reminded me of um and yeah, so he, but anyway, so he's like touching her hand. So now like touch has been established. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so asking her questions about her ring, they're starting to get closer. And it's almost as if like he's pulling the strings to see more of her and get her out more often. Um, and the more that her relationship with Ernie grows and develops, the more that she's led into that life. Right. Yeah. So it seems like we're heading into trouble already at this point. If that's what you're thinking, you're right. We are. <laughs> but we're still cheering Brita on. You know what I mean? Because, yeah. Like, of course, you like you want her. This book is a slow burn and I love it. Like, I, <laughs> I love it because when you actually get to anyways. 
<laughs> At her exercise studio the following Monday, her party is the talk of the change room. One woman says, how come he's aging so badly? And Brita says that at the time, she didn't know why. But now that she knows him, he doesn't look that bad to her. So he must have been going through some shit. Yeah. And one woman said, at 40, you get the looks you deserve. Oh, that's, uh, that's interesting. It's harsh, but also true. <laughs> yeah, I like that we're covering, like, you know, a Bob Dylan in his 40s at this point, too. Yeah. Um, so Bob shows up at their house in Venice on his motorcycle and wants to take a walk down to the boardwalk, but since he can't do anything like that alone, they go with him. So afterwards, uh, Bob and Brita are chatting about CDs versus vinyl. Bob doesn't like CDs because the sound is too clean. And then she's noticing his body language at this point when they're sitting in the kitchen. We're next to each other, facing at right angles, and his hips are rocking nervously towards mine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's bob's birthday um when when i'm gonna yeah bob's birthday they're sitting um outside together just the two of them they find themselves alone and carol calls out that lunch is ready right and so she's very much like i think brita's kind of confused at this relationship because you know carol kind of bosses him around he seems kind of like grumpy and grumbly when he's around her and then so she says the tin man in blue jeans pulls himself up and the two of us walk toward the house together she doesn't understand me he says And this little piece of information, I think, is, like, her big in, Mm. you know. So at the birthday party, Brita gives Bob three gifts. Um, And among them is something he loves, which is a vintage bowling t-shirt that says Bob Dylan, but D-I-L-L-O-N. Bob Dylan's mobile that she's had for years. And uh, he ended up wearing wearing that shirt throughout his next tour. So he pretty much would wear that constantly. Um, She talks about a pretty funny uh, cake fight that started (laughs) because his assistant, Carol, because he said something like, Carol, why don't you cut the cake? You do everything else for me. And then so she put cake in his face and then he put cake in Rita's face and then ended up where he's pouring champagne all over her. And it's a great time. But like Carol is like not happy because she's not into that kind of stuff. She's just like more proper. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at this time, Bob was looking for an artist to, desi- to design his newest album cover, and Brita introduced him to her friend, Tony Goodstone, who wrote the book on pulp art. So they hit it off right away. So that's kind of cool. That's just like a little bit of, um, you know, when we talk about the women who really are like the connectors, and it's like, well, you should, in- you should hook up with these people because you're like, and so I, a lot of the women are like the visionary in that kind of sense. Mm-hmm. Um... So 1986, the True Confessions tour starts and Bob starts to play the song Unchain My Heart, which is a song that Brita's uncle actually wrote. And she had jokingly asked him like a little while before that, maybe around his birthday, um, to start playing it so that her inheritance would go up. And so he pretty much, it kind of sounds like he was kind of starting to play that song for her. Um, At this point, she's living and feeling like a rock star, going to all of the best restaurants. But she says that she was feeling some spiritual unrest. Okay. Things are starting to get complicated with Ernie. She loves him. She loves their life together. But Bob is making things difficult for her. Yes. Imagine. <laughs> what a terrible problem. Mm. <laughs> Bob is playing a show at Madison Square Garden on her birthday. So he invites Ernie and her to come. And he gives Ernie the week off for her birthday. And so Brita asks Bob if he'll play Unchain My Heart and Happy Birthday. And he agrees. However, since he's given Ernie the week off for her birthday, Ernie says that being around Bob on his week off is the last thing that he wants to do. So he brings her to Fiji. And so she's kind of like, 
okay oh. like that's not like you know how can you complain about going to fiji yeah but that's not really where she wants no, to be no um and it's gone around this time too that bob told ernie that brita was the only person that he trusted on that tour hmm. mm. so, is ernie not realizing Mm, she says that people like there was a point where people started to realize it and it was like everybody except for ernie poor ernie but anyway uh <laughs> how come on like he had to have you know and it's like maybe he mm-mm-mm. one of those times where you're blinded because you don't want to see the obvious yeah, that's a good way to put it so in fiji she can't stop thinking about what it would be like to have bobby d sing her happy birthday and ernie spends most of that vacation on the phone leaving mm-hmm. her alone so she's working on a screenplay at this point it's her and ernie's one year anniversary and he's like pushing the sex stuff and asking her what's your fantasy which one of my friends are you hot for and then oh. the paragraph just ends there. <laughs> Never ask that in a relationship. If yeah, no you kidding. still want to be with the person. <laughs> but you know and she never didn't answer. answer it. And yeah. but you know what her answer would have been. Yeah. So she's spending time with Carol at Bob's and she seems nice enough to her, you know, offering to give her screenplay to one of her friends and such. Um, Bob is looking for ways to get Brita alone and suggests that she come up with an idea for his next music video. It never ends up panning out. Like Bob has a lot of ideas and sometimes and he's like, go do and check this out for me and do this. And then a lot of the times they, they she never hears about it again. So Brita and Ernie are uh, living together and they're expanding their house. She loans him $12,000 to buy the property next door. And when the demolition is happening, Bob shows up unannounced unannounced to see what's going on and Ernie's not home. Oh. So he walks around asking her questions and then goes into the photo booth. Oh, okay. He sits down and takes photos of himself. He just like presses the button. And so these, this, uh, on the album, on the album cover, on the book cover here, this is the photo that he took in that photo booth. So this is exactly what he looks like at the time of this is happening. And, um, I'll post a picture or like if you just, um, look up the title of seeing the real you at last life and love on the road with Pop Dylan by Brita Lee Shane, you can see those pictures. Then he says, why don't you climb in here with me? Of course he said that. (laughs) So she says, I sit down, half on Bob's leg and half on the seat. Now he seems fully in his body and his touch flushes me. He puts his arm around my shoulder. Four flashes later, we eagerly await the results. When the pictures drop into the slot, Bob reaches and grabs them. He holds the photos of the two of us close to his chest, studies them and smiles. I'm taking these with me. <laughs> he left the photos of just himself. Yeah. Which she no- found later in the photo booth because she was so, you know, like, Aww. I can't believe that just happened. Yeah. <laughs> he, so. He knows how to build the mm-hmm. build the energy between mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ernie and Brita have a killer Chinese New Year party and notable guests such as Yoko Ono and Joni Mitchell show up. Yoko said to Brita, I want to thank you, Brita, for taking such good care of Sean. Joni and friends stick around until the late morning singing Everly Brothers songs and hits from the 50s and 60s. So 
around this time, she gets a phone call from Bob, and it's recorded on her answering machine. Oh. Okay. 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 I'm going to read it for you. Please. <laughs> this is the message on the answering machine, so imagine checking it. Hi, Brita. This is Bob. I'm just calling from New York City. Uh, I was trying to reach, uh, get a message to Ernie. Couple of things. First of all, contact Bob Myers about the t-shirts that he had made up with, uh, with Jacob's drawing on it, that he'll know about it. Okay? Where are those? Second of all, we want to make a t-shirt. And tell Ernie that, um, we want, we want Satchmo to be on it. So we want some old pictures of Satch. And, uh, <laughs> it would be the same. It would be the Hunts Hall, of course. And, uh, it would be, he could do the same process he did on my t-shirts. My Highway 61 t-shirts. Whatever. <laughs> I hope you get this whole message. I mean, if you don't, listen. If you don't, I don't even know if you're getting this message. <laughs> call, uh, call, uh... Uh, the hotel in New York here. It's the one we usually stay at. Yeah. <laughs> the one we stay at. Ernie will know. Uh, what's it called? Ritz Carlton. <laughs> Ritz Carlton Hotel. And, uh, have Ernie call, uh, call Elliot Mintz and we can discuss this thing further. Okay? <laughs> Click. Dial tone. <laughs> <laughs> That was so, great. <laughs> she says, in the heat of the moment, namely midnight, LA time, the above matter was apparently very urgent. <laughs> <laughs> but I won't get the message until the next day. As far as I know, no t-shirts fitting this description were ever created, <laughs> though the idea might have come up at a time or so when passing, as in, yeah, like the t-shirt for Satch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds like Dylan. Uh, yeah. Uh, I don't know if you're getting this. Okay. So, um, Bob is recording at Sunset Records, and they're getting closer. She's working on her script, um, and she's kind of thinking about the video that she might do for Bob, and she's also hanging out at the record studio. So, like, things are cool. Um, she goes to a party at Bruce Willis's house with all of them. They're driving around um, smoking grass in a limo, and they didn't even know that they were going to Bruce Willis's house. They just knew that they were going to a party. Mm-hmm. Um, Bob ends up breaking into the liquor cabinet that's in the limo. Um, and Bruce Willis is known for having wild parties at this time and like really pissing off his neighbor, off his neighbors. But they said that they, none of them would have gone to this party had they known that it was Bruce Willis's party. Why was Um, he that like crazy? Um, I think, I don't know. He was just like starting off, I think. And I used to love Bruce Willis. I had a crush on him from Die Hard when I was a kid. Mm. Anyway, Mm. I would have gone to that party. (laughs) I would have been happy to go. Um... (laughs) So he's like still newish on the scene. Um, so Bob walks sh- walks into the party through the party. Just walks straight. Doesn't even stop. <laughs> walks into the party through the party straight into the backyard. Okay. Where Brita finds him under a eucalyptus tree. Of course. Um, and so she finds a bottle of red wine and then brings it out to him. So they're just kind of sitting there now under the stars like starting to drink wine. Yeah. Um, and it you know makes me wonder that like if a woman is now this close to Bob Dylan – Bob knows that, like, 
it's like, well, she's now in my orbit. Obviously, there must be something special about her. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, she has made it this far. Yeah. And it kind of made me think, too. And just while we're on the subject of Bob Dylan, I got to talk. One, I got to say, like, at that concert, when I was standing up in front of Bob, <laughs> Lynx is rolling her eyes at me. <laughs> and he looked up at us dancing. And I feel like there might have been that little flash of, like, good for you you did it you made it here (laughs) you got this close do you know what i mean i i I gotcha yeah like i don't know what you did to get here but you did and i think that's pretty cool okay so they're sitting outside at this party and um yeah i'm gonna hold on to that flash of recognition from bob dylan for as long as i live just the mere fact that bob dylan looked at me you know is like imagine sitting beside him drinking wine under a eucalyptus tree for fuck's sakes i know damn okay so people started eventually like joining them um you know little by little people started to feel a little bit more comfortable and then the party gravitated to outside and bruce willis himself is outside rolling up a fatty and um you know brita's kind of like I don't know, I think they kind of gave the impression that he was kind of pompous and that he was just, like, Oh, I bet uh, he was. You know, like, just there I was. Bob Dylan. Yeah. Smoking a joint. At yeah. my party. Yeah. Yeah. So, at this point, Brita and Bob are watching movies together until 3 a.m., like, movies that Carol doesn't like. Okay. Do you know what I mean? I see. Yeah. And they're hanging out with other couples, but it kind of seems like at the end of the night, it's always the two of them that are left over. And, you know, like Carol comes out and is like, okay, you two, like it's time to get to bed. I always find it strange when people stay in relationships with people that they they know don't connect with them on the levels that they want a connection on. Mm-hmm. I, I don't understand how you even get to that point. Well, she's thinking about Bob a lot now at this point. Um, he's on tour with the Grateful Dead and his sons accompany him quite a bit. Um, so he's got the three sons, um, Sam, Jacob and Jesse, Jesse's oldest. Then I think it's Sam and Jacob. Um, one night they went out to dinner on the way back. They passed a bookstore and Joan Baez's, uh, Joan Baez's book was just out. Oh, um, so he's like, come back tomorrow and, uh, (laughs) and get that. And, uh, yeah, maybe those two, too. Like, to make it not seem obvious that, yeah. like, Bob Dylan he was, like, see, like, specifically, yeah, he wanted to know what was written about him. So the next day, Brita went back, got the book, then she, before she gave it to him, she read the whole thing. Uh, and she doesn't say much about the book, only really that Bob hurt her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, there's a pretty funny story um, when I was telling you how, like, sometimes he would get these, like, notions in his head that he just wanted to do something and then drop it completely. Yeah. So, okay, listen to this. Spring 1987, Bob buys Carol an $800,000 house in Coldwater Canyon, and Ernie and I are enlisted to go up there and wait for the telephone man or the cable guy or both. The place is oozing charm and dripping in ivy, which in L.A. means it's crawling with rats, but the setting is peaceful and rustic. Dylan is so impressed by the pest control people who do the inspection on Carol's new house, one young woman in particular, that he decides he wants to do a movie about termite inspectors. He tells Ernie to recruit me to do the research. 
I have a connection to the termite business, having been in real estate, so I call up some of the people I know and put together a five-page report that includes everything from the hours inspectors work to the type of clothing they wear, the relative effectiveness of pesticides used, and a detailed description of the different types of ants, termites, and cockroaches, German, Oriental, and American, that are considered a threat in Southern California. I also provide a reeling expose on rodents. (laughs) Ernie delivers the report to Bob within a couple of days of my assignment. But I never hear any more about it. <laughs> Jesus. Um. Yeah. I guess there's a lot going on in that head. Mm. Hmm. Okay. Moving on. <laughs> um. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers are about to go on tour with Bob Dylan. Um. And Ernie. Oh, a European tour. And Ernie mentions that he has so much work to do that he might not be able to make it for the whole tour or for the tour. Um, so she's with them right now. They are uh, in the States and they're in Philly, which she says is very rock and roll. And she buys a tie-dye jacket that she likes and wants to buy one for Bob. But Ernie says that he'd hate it. Like, don't buy one for Bob. He would hate that. Okay, mm-hmm. remember that jacket. Yes. Okay, there's a reason why I'm mentioning this. So uh, then they're back in New York, and her, Bob, Ernie, um, and Carol are walking around late at night. Um, and then Bob ends up sending Carol home. Uh, they drink martinis until 4 a.m., and then they go and eat a pastrami sandwich at a deli until 4. Um, like him, her, Ernie, and, like, maybe Elliot. Um... But Bob ends up calling Carol at like four o'clock in the morning to be like, do you want to come eat a sandwich? And this like pisses <laughs> Carol off. So Bob seems kind of like a twat in a way. Yeah. Um, so things are going to start to happen now. Okay. okay. So okay. we're getting there. So Bob, they're on the tour bus and it's just Brita and Bob. They find themselves somehow for some whatever reason alone on the tour bus. Um, and Bob sends her off to count how many step- steps there are from the tour bus to the stage because he says he's blind and he's not sure. And she's not sure if he's just like messing with her yeah. at this point. But basically while she's gone, he goes through her stuff and finds the tie-dye jacket. And he asks, why didn't you get me one? Oh, God. First of all, why are you going through her shit? That's like so not cool. But Well, she's kind of like, I can't leave you alone for a second. It's kind of at this point now where I think he was like, and anyways, he was he was wearing it. So like, <laughs> so she says, well, Ernie said that you wouldn't like it. And he said, Ernie doesn't know what I like. You know what I like. Uh, um... And then she let it be known that Ernie would not be joining for the whole European tour. And Bob said, guess I better take you with me then. Okay. at the sound check she said or she says at the sound check i feel the first for the first time totally overawed by bob's celebrity status my association with him and the notion that he and i have developed some kind of special relationship so um now people are starting to notice yeah i said the grateful dead people in the crew everyone seemingly except for ernie um so Uh, she's on the tour bus with Bob and they're just like sitting around and then they see people two people on a motorcycle drive up and one of them is Stevie Nicks and Bob's like go get her go get her bring her on the bus bring her on the bus so Brita goes out is like Stevie Nicks and she's like yeah and she's like Bob wants to see you on the bus so she's sitting around smoking a joint Stevie Nicks Bob Dylan and then they get a knock on the tour bus door and it's Sarah Dylan Cool. So she comes up because she's at this show that night too gotcha. and they have a little chat and uh, she introduces herself and then quickly says, I'm Ernie's girlfriend. 
And then as she's walking out of the bus, Bob whispers and sighs and shakes his head and goes, now you know that just isn't true at all. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah. She's like, yeah, yeah, I know. (laughs) So they are getting ready to go on tour, a European tour for three months. And she's going. And um, why is she going? Well, because she's going to be Bob's shopper now. Shopper. Yeah. Okay. So she's on the payroll. (laughs) And um, she's getting ready. But she's like, she was really back and forth on it because she knew that once she was on the tour, she knew things were going to happen. So a part of her was like, oh, Ernie. But also it's Dylan. So she packed for all kinds of weather. And then all of a sudden, Ernie goes, "Mm, you might not be going on this tour at all. And she's like, what? You know? But in the end, Bob changes his mind and then says that she can go. So all of this is not registering as suspicious as all, as all to Ernie that they're okay. all sort of like, should she go? Should she not go? Um, I guess Bob was also having a time trying to yeah. maybe yeah. not go there, but wanting to go there. Mm. So at this time, the tour is called Temple in Flames. It's late August of 1987. Um, everyone has boarded the plane except for Bob and the plane is about to leave and there's no sign of him. So Brita kind of in, like in, intuitively instinctively knows where he might be. She just finds him wandering around out front and he's like, do you want to go get a drink? And um, so they miss their flight. But, you know, that's what Ernie gets paid for. That's his job, basically. Yeah. He's road manager. Yeah. So he gets them another flight and then they eventually go. Um, They all, including Bob's oldest son, Jesse, fly to Egypt. And that includes Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and their wives. So it was a big tour. So they all went all together. Cool. Yeah. Um, There's some good stories here. Visiting the pyramids, uh, being in a bathing suit around Bob and him in a small black uh, Speedo. Oh, no. (laughs) They talk about museums (laughs) together um, and standing in front of a like 400 year old tambourine and like the dinner with the band and uh, the bands and their wives. So this is kind of just a cute little to set the scene. Afterwards, we join, we're join. we joined by members of the Petty Band and their wives at the Fofella restaurant in Cairo, where about 12 of us laugh, drink, and feast on some of the best Middle Eastern food in the world. Our table looks like the Last Supper, with Bob bearded and scraggly-haired playing Jesus. Mm. I'm sitting across from him. Fresh, warm pita bread, vegetables, platters of fish, lamb chops, shish kebab. The food and drink just keep coming. Here's to Kebab Dylan, his cousin Stan <laughs> howls, raising his wine glass. And, of course, everyone raises a glass to Bob. Awesome. Good times. <sighs> yeah. Um, so now they're after Egypt. They're touring around Europe. They're in Western Europe. And there's one bus for the Petty Band, one bus for the backup singers, and one bus for Bob and immediate family and friends, which is the one that she's on. Wow. It's really close. Yeah. So her and Bob go exploring during the days. Um, and she says that she has the most fun with him than anyone else. Uh, he buys her a hat and she's thinking, I'm only happy when I'm with Bob. So things are starting to get like, you know, she's she's under Emotionally the Bob spell and it's yeah. just a whole like, holy fuck. Um, he's doing really well on this tour. Um, and he's had so many bad reviews recently that like, you know, now it can start to say like no two shows were alike. And he's even being frisky on stage and singing songs like seeing the real you at last. I want you and trust yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but she does say like, you know, he is very troubled and unhappy, you know, and there's a lot of like, um, yeah, a lot of alcohol and just like 
underlying like, issues. There. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So after the concert, um, Elliot R., Dr. K., and Ernie and I sit around the plush lounge of our elegant hotel while Dylan gets more and more sloshed. At one point, he gets involved in a sing-along with a couple of his backup singers. Ben Montench, the keyboard player from the Heartbreakers, is at the piano. Bob slurs his way through old standards like I Left My Heart in San Francisco and new standards like You've Got a Friend. It's not long after this that he almost totally, the almost totally incoherent Bob Dylan falls out of his chair. No, mm-hmm. Bob. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Ernie leaves at this point and, like, leaves the tour, has to go and do whatever. And she's finally alone with Bob Dylan. But now that she's alone with Bob Dylan, all of a sudden, this woman just appears kind of out of nowhere in Finland. She's the wife of um, somebody who died. I forget what her name is. She has short hair. Anyways, she starts sleeping with Bob Dylan or in like the back of his bus. So Brita's like, why does she get to sleep in your bed? You know, and he's like, oh, she doesn't mean anything to me. Then get rid of her. So, but yeah, no, like, I don't know. It's just like a weird, this may be some kind of like power thing. Like, anyways, so um, she's saying that. Now that this woman was there for a few days, like, his shows were shitty again. And maybe it was because, like, she was keeping him up and uh, whatever. And <laughs> I'm sure she was. <laughs> so, yeah. So one day in Finland, uh, Brita and Bob are walking around and they see a woman reading a newspaper. And on the cover is Bob. So Bob stops her and asks her what the magazine says. And the Finnish woman says that she would prefer not oh, to no. tell him what it says. Because um, it's bad, she yeah. says. And so they convince her to read the headline. And she says, the headline read... The god arrived, the man performed. Her face is burning red, and they make her continue. And she says that somebody wrote that uh, Dylan would have been better if he died young like the other legends, like Elvis and Marilyn and so on. So, yeah, I know. That's evil. Mm -hmm. So this woman invites them up for tea, and then they end up going. And so it's just, you can imagine this moment with just Brita Bob and this woman that they saw on the street, and they're just having tea. And then she asked Bob if he would sign all of her um, records and stuff for her, and he did. Wow. So they almost missed their ferry to Sweden because of this, and everyone is in a panic when they get back. Um, she mentioned something interesting about Bob Dylan walking into the ferry and just like disappearing into the himself because he doesn't want anybody to notice that he's there, but it just makes him more obvious and mm. draws more attention that in fact Bob Dylan is there. Um, and uh, they do make it to the ferry, and the woman is there again, and Bob says, well, there was no reservation for her, so she has to stay in my room. And Brita offers <laughs> that, well, she can stay in my room. Yeah. And then Bob says, ain't nothing going to happen between her and me. Uh. In Sweden, they check into a hotel, um, and Bob has been put into the room 666. He's not pleased. <laughs> and so Brita's like, you can sleep in my bed. And he considers it and goes, oh, everyone wants to lie down with me. Um. Which she says is true. Um, at this point, they start writing a song together called You Can Blow My Mind If You Want To. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's about a love triangle between two guys and a girl. And so she's sitting with him at this point in the back quarters of his bus where his bed is, writing out his set lists, asking him questions about uh, how he was inspired to write certain songs. And um, she says that uh, like now the Finnish woman's gone and his performances are growing stronger. And then, so she says that there's some pretty sexy moments, like where he's standing on the side, she's standing on the side of the stage, and he's looking at her, and he's singing to her, and so, 
Yeah. About Tom Petty and Heartbreakers, she says, um, Tom Petty and his band are obvious Dylan fans, and they understand the nuances of his music, especially Benmont, the keyboard player. Having grown up playing piano, I like to stand behind him during the performances and watch how his long sculpted fingers dance over the keys, capturing Dylan's essence. And it's funny because, like, after I saw Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and standing behind Belmont, uh, Belmont, Benmont, kind of the same thing, I think I wrote something similar about his fingers. Cool. Yep. So she's back on the bus. Okay, we're gonna heat up again. Okay? I'm ready. So if you're like, if you guys are feeling like, oh, okay, we're we're heating up again, guys. I am ready. Um. Yep. So she's on the bus with Bob, just the two of them. They're playing a game of Go, and after a while, she gets up to make tea. Bob gets up, stands behind her, and he's gonna go get a beer. And lingering directly behind her, he says. You're so easily bored. You don't even pretend to be interested. She can feel the heat coming off of his body and onto her back. And she says, without turning around, is that so? Uh-huh, Dylan says, you're going to get bored with me. Aww. So she says that night, Bob directs the driver of the bus to stop in the middle of nowhere while everyone else stands by so the two of us can listen to the frogs sing as we go out for a long walk under the stars. Yeah, um, side note, at around this time, Bob decides to spend the night on the tour bus with the backup singers. And he says it's to, like, practice. Okay. You know? And she's like, well, he's obviously, like, sleeping with one of them. Yeah. But the girls the next day said that he just, like, showed up on the bus, drank a lot, and passed out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in Italy, uh, Bob buys her a gift. What was Can it? Can you guess? Any guesses? What might Bob Dylan buy somebody as a gift? A guitar? (laughs) A pair of denim fringed hot pants. Oh, of course. Yeah, of Of course. course. And she's kind of like, what? But she wears them around the room (laughs) and garners his approval, but she never wears them again. Good call. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) She says, the next day, Ben Mont and I visit the Sistine Chapel with Mike Campbell and his wife. Mike Campbell is the guitar player of Mm -hmm. uh, the Heartbreakers. Ben Mont's cute and intelligent with a droll sense of humor. I think he likes hanging out with Dylan as much as I do. The Campbells, too, are sweethearts. Should be Tom Petty in there. Sweethearts. Mike and his wife have spotted a pair of boots by a famous Italian designer in a window somewhere that they think I would like. Um... All the while, we wait in the seemingly interminable, mm-hmm. interminable line to get a peek at Michelangelo's triumph. Um, they give me directions on how to get there. So it's just a little side note of um, how awesome Mike Campbell is. Mm. Beautiful man. Okay, this is where we're really getting, really getting steamy. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> Shanti's sit- not ready <laughs> guys <laughs> you try recording a podcast hungover <laughs> okay so I sit back down on the floor in Bob's room while he and Carol duke it out over whether or not she should have plastic surgery because she called for him I can't believe that he didn't invite her to come with him to Europe and that she would put up with it what kind of relationship is that hmm mm-hmm What's what she need plastic surgery for? He asks. 
He plays with my hair, pushing it behind my ear to look at my face. He tells me he likes the way my hair hangs down and the fact that I don't wear much makeup. You walk like me, he continues. You talk like me. Our hair is even the same color. Mmm, I shrug, keeping my eyes on the screen. You don't need any surgery. I wouldn't do it even if I did, I say. I'm not going to pay for it, he says. <laughs> Before Harrison Ford can rescue Karen Allen from the snake pit, because we're watching a movie, Bob pulls me closer and kisses me. Previously, Bob's told me that he's against going all the way. He can convinced it's what makes the women go crazy. Now, roiling in a haze of marijuana smoke and flickering television images, with our fervor finally free to ignite, our bodies practically melt into each other. Ooh. Abruptly, Bob backs off. He's thought twice. And it's not all right. No! It's the high holy days, he groans, and Ernie's my friend. No! Mm-hmm. But they carry on. It's okay. like, the, so uh, we're going to keep going. Without even entering me, Bob Dylan's the best lover in the world. Wow. He's definitely present now. His body is perfect, and I can see why he wants to use it all the time. Just feeling him rising and lowering on top of me, I can come a thousand times. Jesus. Ernie would have a heart attack. <laughs> Oh no! Yeah, um, it gets steamy, mm -hmm. even more. You know, Bob rolls over on his side next to me, his hands dancing delicately over my flesh, as if he's trying to, div or he's trying to divine the secret to some great mystery through the tips of his fingers. He's not disappointed. Whew. Sounds like a good time. So she says his onstage energy is good at this point. He's looking healthier. He's in a good mood. And at this point, the relationship is just like totally full-blown. And he's not there. And everybody knows. Like, it's... They've stopped the, the little dance. Now they're just yeah. fully in it. Yeah. Yeah. And But she's starting to feel guilty now. So they're still walking around. Bob's like, you know, walking past things like, do you want me to buy this for you? And she's like, no, no. Like, I don't want... No, that's fine. And um, Ernie is scheduled to come back to Europe uh, oh, no. to, for the tour very soon. Um, they're working on their song again. Um, and around this time, Bob gets a call from Sarah Dillon saying that she found out that Bob was having another child uh, somewhere and that he had been caught buying baby clothes, which he had been. And then and so at the, so somebody was having Bob's child at this point oh no and she said I wish I would have heard it from like somebody else yeah okay and remember I mentioned the uh, backup singers yeah he was married to one of them at this point no yeah what mm-hmm mm -hmm. so that whole so time so he's got he's got Brita he's got backup singers and Carol Carol the woman from Finland like do you know what I and mean and the backup singer he's been married to she doesn't mention more than later. She'd Is she, she come the one to who's find out later. Pregnant? Possibly. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. So Why would you be married to someone and uh, not even Because he's to Bob Dylan. Uh, he's like Yeah. So before the night before Ernie returns, um, they stay in and have a romantic dinner. They light candles, eat lamb chops, and share a bottle of champagne. He says things like, I can give you things he can't. Oh you know, God. so it's like dangerous territory. As Ernie comes in, Bob flies in another woman. Of course, another he does. one. So Ernie's coming in, and then Brita's like, "Who is this woman?" Like, 
why are you bringing her? And he's like, because you're going to be with Ernie. Oh, shut up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're both kind of freaking out before Ernie arrives. And it's at this point that kind of out of nowhere, Bob pulls out a ring in a jewelry box. Apparently it's pretty ugly. And he asks her <laughs> if she likes it. And she's like, it's okay. And before she had the time to like mention anything else, he just slams it shut. Okay. It's only later that the ring comes up like at a psychic reading where she questions more of like, could it have had more meaning? Yeah. You know? But it's up to kind of, yeah, you know, with so much going on, so much women going on. Like it's... Uh, the relationship is obviously important. They spend a lot of time together. And the thing that they keep going back on again a lot of this, like, she understands him and nobody else understands him and Carol doesn't understand him, but she does. And, you know. I just wonder, like, to have married someone, like, what was he saying to her? I don't know. <sighs> so Ernie's back. The ambiance in the bus on the way home is stilted. All the passengers except Ernie know what's been going on with me. Ugh. And... <laughs> Yeah. Damn. With me and Bob. And Dylan is sulking in his private quarters alone. I'm in my own world, torn between Jupiter and Apollo. After we disembark, Ernie is lagging with the luggage when Bob comes up behind me on the street corner across from the hotel. He rustles his face in the hair at the back of my neck and, and whispers, Brigida, Brida, I love you. I love you. So, like, now things get fucked. So. Oh, Bob, I'm angry. Yeah. <laughs> So she's sick as a dog at this point, probably from all of the stress. And Ernie wants to make love. And she's mentioned before that, like, Ernie is a crap lover and he doesn't listen to her. And this time is no different. And so she tells him she doesn't want to have sex with him. But he persists. And um, thinking that this persistence is actually, like, you know, sexy. That'll probably end up turning her on. So they end up, quote unquote, making love. And then she ends up, like, pounding on his chest going, stop, stop. And he's like, what? And she goes, I'm in love with Bob. Uh, so now things get next level fucked um ernie packs up his stuff quits and furiously takes off um and then she goes to bob and she tells him i told him i love you and that we're going to the caribbean together um because when the tour is over that's what bob wanted to do with her like he wanted to yeah go to the caribbean and evidently pleased by this latest development he presses me up against the wall of the hotel room as dylan's hard perfect body pounds madly into mine ernie will knock too lightly on bob's door to say goodbye yeah, so at this point, uh, as the tour comes to a close, they've been invited to spend some time at George Harrison's house and then off to the Caribbean. But what comes next is like a big twist that she did not see coming. Carol calls and rips into Bob. Uh-uh. Ernie called Carol and told her everything oh. that had been happening. Jeez. So Brita looks at Bob and goes, what are we going to do now? To which he replies, baby. You're going to have to go home. No. And that's it. The end. No. Not quite. But, I mean, that's the end of their relationship. That is bullshit, Uh, Bob. Yeah. So they still have a little bit of time left before, you know, she leaves. Yeah. Um, But he's completely dismissed her. That's bullshit. It's like she went from number one. To not even getting an acknowledgement when he walks off the stage. Imagine how that must feel to be in Dylan's... To to be fucking Bob Dylan. To... You're done. Yeah. Your number's been called. And to know that, like, you were never number one. He might have been Mm. saying those things, but obviously he cared more about Carol... Well, that's I don't what know Ernie why. would say to her. She's like, but he called me his sweetheart, his baby. Yeah, and he he's said, like, I love me. And, and he's like, he calls everybody that because he can't get anybody's name straight. Oh, God. 
because there's so many of them. Yeah. But she was in love with him, and yeah. he said that he loved her too. And you want to believe it so bad. Yeah, and it's just like imagine being so high, so high from Bob Dylan like that to that crash. <sighs> you know, like imagine how that must feel because she was riding so high, almost like you know, flying too close to the sun. Yeah. And then it's a devastating, devastating crash. Like, talk about, you know, groupie blues. Oh, man. Like, I think I have groupie blues sometimes after I've just seen a good show or, like, you know, hang yeah, out with a band. Imagine. Devastating. Like, Bob Dylan, you know what I mean? Mm hmm, mm hmm. So at this point, she said she was feeling empty, used up, that she doesn't understand what's going on. Of course. And Bob tells her it's a man thing. Oh, fuck you. A man thing? Yeah, between me and Ernie. Understand? No, Bob, I say, shaking my head. I'm sitting on the floor across from him, hugging my knees to my chest. I do not understand. Look, you can't just see someone walking down the street, Bob says, referring again to how Ernie and I first met. Ernie owes me $10,000, I say grimly. For the, I guess for the um, construction on the house? Yeah. Kiss that money goodbye, Bob bites his lower lip. Maybe you should come work for me. I don't want to work for you, I yelp. I'm a writer, too. Uh-uh. <laughs> Bob, I need an explanation here. The truth. Dylan clutches his gnarled hands penitently over the crotch of his black jeans. Sometimes I do bad things, he oh, says. Oh, my God. He's way too old to be pulling that kind of shit. <sighs> So basically, she goes home and like she wants to die. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> it's just bad. Um, her, uh, her and Ernie have a big fight, you know, and they end up like she packs her stuff up, she leaves, she tries to heal, put the pieces of her shattered life back together. Um, but for a little bit of on a light note here, um, she goes to a party at Danny Goldberg's house. And apparently the whole point of the party was to set her up with Michael DeBar. No way. Yeah. Yeah. She had they had some friends that wanted to hook them up. And uh, but I guess she's just like totally unable yeah. to, you know, just think about anything like that. Um, but she sees Michael, you know, like kind of sitting in a chair. And as she's about to leave, he finds her at the door and says, you think it's an accident? You and I are both the only ones wearing black. <laughs> so nothing ever happened. But you can picture Michael DeBar saying that, right? Oh, like yeah. that's so funny. Um, so she sees Bob twice more afterwards. Um, one time running into him at the Doctor K, like the acupuncturist, uh, into his office. And so it's just like, what have you been doing? Writing. And I'm like, hopefully not about me. <laughs> And she's like, I've been playing the guitar. And she's like, I've been learning uh, Don't Think Twice, It's All Right, but I can't get the strum. And so he, like, goes up behind her and, like, shows her how to strum it. Um, so that was one of the last times she saw him. And she started to finally get some peace and understanding. Um, Ernie really blamed things on her. And then Bob also blamed things on her. Of course. So when Bob was talking to Ernie, trying to explain him, it was very much he was like, well, she, she made was, me do yeah, this. she would come into my room and she was only wearing this and all that. And then so she's like, wait a second. This was not all my fault. No. You know, what happened was between her and Bob. And he knew the power that he had. Yeah. And they all had a part in it, she said, including Ernie. Mm -hmm. So she decided to stop taking all the blame. Good. I'm glad she wrote the book, too. Mm Mm-hmm. He deserves. 
Exactly. And so she has a 40th birthday party. And I think Bob calls her sometime around here and she doesn't call him back. Um, and the last time she sees him is at a concert and he's quite out of it. And at first doesn't even really register that she's there. And um, so then she was like, you know, look up high. And then he was just like, oh, Brida. And then he's just talking about that time in Helsinki when the light was just so... And then his son comes up from behind, puts his hand on his shoulder and tells him that they've got a table waiting in the back. And so it was kind of like, you know, she, uh, when she used to be a part of that, that brief time, yeah. you know, when she used to be a part of that circle, she just, you know, was no longer. And then he off he walked, you know, to join his friends. And I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He got swept up into his entourage and she was and he was gone. So in 1993, she marries a cinematographer um, and it's in 1998 that she decides to write um, the Bob Dylan story of her life, mm-hmm. um, f- of course, for peace. And she says that because if she doesn't truly let him go, she will never be able to fully love someone else. And that's like including her husband. So around this time, she begins to write the book. She watches Imagine, the John Lennon documentary. In the film, she hears the song, I don't believe in Jesus. Yeah. I don't believe in Elvis or Kennedy. I don't believe in Zimmerman, he adds. I just yes. believe in me. It's a good one. So in Paris, uh, with her husband, she's reflecting. Writing about my experience with Dylan has helped me heal the rift that's existed inside me for too many years. That terrible split between what was right with me and Bob and the rest of the world and what I can't help thinking was fate. In fact, if I had to do it all over again, mm-hmm. I would. Wow. That was good. Dylan yeah. is an ass. It's I'm reading a book right now too that um we'll be discussing and it's just it sucks when like all these people that you just love so much, you know, are human and sometimes like terrible assholes and just But what is it, Lynx, that despite Knowing about Carol, knowing about the tour bus going on, seeing this woman in Finland, it yeah. doesn't matter. I she know. still made the choice because there's, it's Bob Dylan. It's, yeah, like there's there a magic are there. beings on this planet that it's almost like rules, like regular yeah. rules just don't apply. Like imagine how many people in this world like just – like want to fuck Dylan, you yeah. know, and that's the whole thing about the rock stars: sex, drugs, rock and roll. There's just something about they get forgiven a lot easier mm-hmm. than everyone else does, for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, how old is uh, Bob right now? Like seventy. Yeah, if yeah. he wanted to give it a go, <laughs> I would give it a go. I would. I, I would. Yeah. Yep. Oh, because it's Bob Dylan. Let's hope that he's not still, uh, I, but like, why wouldn't he be? I'm sure, like you said, there are women all around him right I'm now. I heard single right now. Oh, well, that's, that's a start. Yeah. Go get him. I'm going to. <laughs> well, we know where his artist studio is. Actually, I remember, I, I, I messaged you and I was like, where's uh, Bob's studio again? And you're like, that's not a conversation that we had. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, I remember who I had it with. So I asked them and then they told me where his studio was. And then I told you. So yes. we'll just have to go and hang out in front of it and we'll have to see for ourselves. We'll get some hot pants and... Uh... Mm. <laughs> Denim fringe hot pants. Yes. Okay, well, um, 
All right. Yeah, that was great. That's, that's that. That is the story of Brita Lee Shane. You did a great job, especially being hungover. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, so that's it. Yeah. Our episodes are getting longer. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're worth chatting about. Yeah, I think so. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Yes. You want to tell the people where they can find Yes, the- you can find us on Twitter. At Shanti and Links, and you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, uh, Muses and Stuff Podcast, and uh, yeah, okay. our website. That's it. iTunes. Yeah, we're all over. We are all over the world. Okay, thank you so much for listening. I love you all. Yes. Good night. Have you ever watched a futuristic sci-fi movie and wondered, but wait, could any of this really happen? And will I live long enough to see it? That's what our show Hypothetical is about. I'm Carrie Bechet, and on this podcast, we ask what-if questions about the future. Like, what if we could read minds? What if the world's digital data was erased all at once? What would happen if the Yellowstone supervolcano erupted? Then we explore that question two ways, through speculative science fiction and through dialogue with brilliant scientists. The result is a genre-bending narrative that's interwoven with real facts provided by literal geniuses. And, spoiler alert, a lot of the science fiction out there, it's not nearly as far-fetched as you might think. Come time travel with me into the future on Hypothetical. New episodes on Tuesdays available on all your favorite podcast apps. Just search Hypothetical. That's H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L.